Welcome to Humanly, the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date, evidence-based and clinically relevant information. This podcast is a melting pot of ideas on health and well-being and does not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Humanly. My name is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by Dr. Christine Horton, and I'm very excited to be speaking with you, Christine, because we've been chatting for many, many months now about a range of topics, and you're incredibly knowledgeable, and I'm really grateful to have you on the podcast today. So thank you for being here. Oh, that's a pleasure, Daniel. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. You've been in the industry for many, many years, Christine, and you've been a practitioner, you've been a researcher, you've done a PhD in nutritional biochemistry. You're also the founder of Cell Logic as well, a company that I think is providing some wonderful information to clinicians and practitioners, and also some really wonderful um, supplements that are targeted towards various cellular functions uh, from a sort of biochemical perspective. But you didn't always start there, did you? Because you you got into naturopathic and nutritional medicine back in the 70s, well before supplements were even really used that widely. I did. In fact, um, I graduated with a, a bachelor's degree in biochemistry from UQ in 1975. And several years after that, I graduated with a degree in chiropractic from Macquarie University. And I didn't actually ever learn any serious nutrition. But um, to me, when I went to university to do a degree in biochemistry, I actually thought I would be learning about the role of food and the way in which food molecules would impact biochemical pathways. But I didn't. I didn't learn that at all. It isn't in the course. It wasn't then. I don't think it is now. And so it was just my quest to understand more about how this all works that I did my own reading and bit by bit um, as a chiropractor seeing patients every day and being a primary contact healthcare provider, I gradually introduced um, various bits and pieces of nutritional therapy along the way. Now that sounds pretty tacky these days when I wasn't really qualified but the 70s were a very different era and chiropractors weren't registered at that stage either. It wasn't for quite some years later that I actually did a grad dip in human nutrition through Deakin University and that gave me the first formal qualification I had. Um, but yes, I've been practicing for quite a long time and to me, no matter what I'm doing, whether it's um, spinal manipulation, which is a physical therapy, to me, what's going on in the cellular chemistry always underpins all of that. So I had a very strong focus on food right from the outset. And that time, the mid-70s, was just at the beginning of the megavitamin therapy era. And we were being infiltrated with information coming in from the US. And it was a pretty exciting time to be in practice because everything was changing and the whole world opened up with all sorts of new ideas, many of which I might tell you later um, I would never practice uh, in that way anymore because I think a lot of the things that were being done really are quite counter to the way human cells function. Because when you started practicing, there was a much more of a focus around food as medicine. And whilst that's still a large part of what we do today in nutrition and naturopathy, from my perspective, and I'm not sure if you also share this view, but I think that we've sort of lost touch with that and we could actually benefit our clients and get far better results by focusing a little bit more on food as medicine and a little bit less on providing specific nutrients and trying to influence specific biochemical pathways. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, look, I couldn't agree more because, you know, uh, now there's been something like 10,000 phytochemicals being identified in the plant food that we consume. We know a bit about some of those and not much about most of them. 
But as we're starting to learn about food, it's not just anymore about vitamins, minerals, trace elements, carbohydrates, fats, proteins, and so on. It's now about the signaling effects that occur. So these phytochemicals, there can be all sorts of different shapes of molecules. Largely, they're giving plant food their colour, their smell, those sorts of characteristics, taste as well. Those molecules are signaling molecules. And when they get into a cell, there are switches, if you like, which are really transcription factors. But these switches pick up those signals and those signals now travel to the DNA and they now change the expression of certain genes. Now, we had no idea of this back in the 70s. Um, interestingly, one of the books which was popular at the time um, was a book by Roger Williams called Biochemical Individuality. And I read that with great interest and uh, he talked about the fact that we're all individuals and what works for one patient or individual won't work for another and therefore we can individualise treatment. Lovely in theory, but we didn't have a clue how to get any of that information, none whatsoever. It's only years later now that we're understanding more about nutrigenetics and nutrigenomics that we can see that individuals have these polymorphisms or SNPs in their genes that alter the way genes are expressed. So that original concept of food that goes back to the early traditional healers, and I'll call them healers, because food was their medicine. And uh, to me, I've just come right round the full circle in all of these years, and now looking back at that role of food, which was pretty much the only tool I had at the time because there were so few supplements on the market. But I've gained such an appreciation of it now that I didn't used to have. I think, unfortunately, what's changed along the way is that this, this concept that's floating around that says, oh, you know, modern agriculture has destroyed our food. Everybody knows there's nothing left in our food. Um, let's take this supplement. And I might say that that was exploited for all it's worth in the early and, and mid-70s when the first supplements appeared on the market because that was how the multivitamin supplement makers in particular sold truckloads of, of supplements. And while there are elements of truth in the fact that, you know, the soil is not quite what it was and uh, we're adding agricultural chemicals that are not in our best interest. In spite of all of that, those phytochemicals, which are the signalling mo molecules in plants, are still every bit as important now as they ever have been. And I think that the people who are relying on supplements alone, instead of having appropriate amounts of food, and particularly plant food, are really doing themselves a huge disservice. So that's how I've kind of gone this full circle and I'm back now with a probably more healthy respect for the power of food than I ever did back in the 70s. So you were right there at the start of when they started using vitamin megadosing um, and that form of therapy seems to have been carried through the 80s, 90s, and even now today in 2020, many clinicians are still using vitamin megadosing. And I must say there probably are situations where it may be warranted, but much like you, I've also come full circle and I was a very big proponent of using vitamin megadosing and trying to target specific pathways with nutrients and trying to influence different cell mechanisms with this milligram of zinc or this milligram of vitamin E or whatever it may be. And I'm coming to the point now where I am of the opinion that we actually probably can't do that. It's, it's very hard to influence specific pathways. Um, is that because single nutrients can't do it and they require all these other constituents within a food to have that effect? Yes, that's that's one reason. Most certainly this idea of using an isolated nutrient, there's nowhere in nature that this happens, nowhere. If you eat a cashew, for example, which is a source of magnesium, 
it's also a source of manganese and zinc and B vitamins and vitamin E and so on and so forth. However Mother Nature packaged those nutrients together, the cell likes them that way, whether we understand the proportions or not. So I pre prefer to provide as diverse a diet as I can to cover all of the options using targeted supplements, as you mentioned, where necessary. And if we need to catch up a deficiency in a hurry, we can do that. I'm not talking about the need to do that, but I'm talking about this preoccupation with using synthetic supplements. Remember that these are synthetic supplements. They're not from food. They will often come with a range of excipients that until recently have not been disclosed. Um, but now we're starting to see that there are excipients in these uh, nutrient supplements. And the, the other issue that, that I see being a problem there is you were saying that you would give a micronutrients, I'll use, use zinc again as an example. You would use zinc because you wanted to target several different pathways. You thought the patient was probably in need of zinc. But what we did, and this was what the early megavitamin therapy was about, and this is what Roger Williams' biochemical individuality was about, is he said zinc is a cofactor for these enzymes. Let's say it's alcohol dehydrogenase. Most people can relate to that enzyme. So zinc is a cofactor there. And so if we give enough zinc, we will drive that enzyme reaction to completion. And you will because you increase the level of that cofactor. But there are other ways that nature uses to drive that reaction to completion. And that's where the plant signaling molecules come into play. Nature doesn't have any way of giving you an isolated large quantity of zinc, no way at all. Nature has a way of activating those switches within the cell which increase the expression of the alcohol dehydrogenase gene to enable the cell to produce more of that enzyme. And it doesn't need a megadose of zinc to do it. You can do it that way, but now you're in, impacting a whole lot of other enzymes which may or may not want to be upregulated at the same time. So that's the difference as I see it. What I'm interested in knowing is your perspective on where we actually went wrong with all of this in nutrition and naturopathy because well, I think it's pretty and clear I probably sound like a broken happened. record because I say I say this in many or haven't gone wrong where we have and haven't gone wrong but mm -hmm. I say this in many um, podcasts when I'm talking to clinicians and even when I'm speaking to students from a herbal medicine perspective we understand that there is a concept known as synergy where all the separate little compounds within a herb work together to provide a activity or a benefit that's actually greater than the sum of all of those parts. Mm -hmm. But we've forgotten about that with nutrients. And when you talk to a nutrition clinician or student or whoever it may be, and you sort of put that concept towards them, um, you almost look like you're speaking a foreign language because there's been this such a great push towards single nutrient dosing. So why do you think we've head, headed down that track and do you think that we need to sort of take a few steps back, get back in touch with our roots and start thinking more along that lines of synergy uh, in terms of food? Well, absolutely, and I think you can sum it up by saying what we're trying to do with modern nutritional therapy where we're using isolated supplements, I think we're trying to micromanage cell function we don't have any ability to do that. We have no way to influence pathways within a cell which are auto-regulated in their own way. So if I activate something within the cell or it act naturally activates itself, there are all sorts of auto-regulatory mechanisms which just trim the sails a little bit. Um, I mean, I sometimes say it's like a racing car driver. You've got your foot on the accelerator all the time, going fast, but you've got your other foot on the brake, constantly touching the brake. The cell knows when it needs to touch the brake. The clinician doesn't. We just simply do not have any of that control. So that's why I think we just stand back, give Mother Nature her toolbox, 
and let her figure it out. Now, let me get back to answering the question, where did this go wrong? In my opinion, it started in 1954. Dr. Denham Harmon was now claimed to be the father of anti-aging medicine. He was, I believe, a petrochemical chemist, and he was looking at the role of free radicals and antioxidants in petrochemistry, if that's what it's called, and he could see that, you know, you, you had this ageing effect of oxidative stress and free radical activity, and you could counter that um, with an antioxidant effect. He then translated that to human nature and decided that if we had all these free radicals and we could quench them with all these antioxidants, we could slow down the ageing process, we could reduce oxidative stress. So that's 1954. Fast forward to the 60s, Linus Pauling, also in pure chemistry, no life sciences, um, was at the end of his career and he was also looking at the antioxidant free radical story. He came out then in the 70s sometime, late 70s, I think, with his book Vitamin C and the Common Cold and then another one, Vitamin C and Cancer. And those books took the world by storm. Uh, he was using grams of vitamin C in large doses. And so that sort of set off this concept. Now, where, where we've gone wrong with this is, so we said, all right, free radicals are destroying cells. Antioxidants are protecting them. We can just get these vitamin supplements and we can solve that problem. Instead, we could have taken another fork in the road and said, that, yes, free radicals and antioxidants are playing a role, but why do the longest living people in the world live for so long? Well, they do that because they have a diet which is rich in plant food and a good lifestyle and so on. We made the mistake of thinking their very healthy diet was because of the individual antioxidant vitamins instead of, at the time, realising that there's these signalling molecules in plants. And that's what's influencing health. So as far as I'm concerned, we took the wrong fork in the road and that's the thing that set us off down this track. And it's been decades before we can actually get back on track again and realise now that cells don't work the way we thought they did. I'm sorry about that telephone. And... Um, so cells don't work the way we thought they did and it's really only been since 2004 when the term nutrigenomics was coined that we've come to realise that plant molecules and food molecules in general, but it's mostly plants, talk to our DNA through food and that's what's made the difference. And so I think we've gone down the wrong track for decades and um, I am trying to help clinicians to see that we have done that and, and I'm trying to pull them back to see this in a different way and to trust the fact that if you if you address a patient's condition appropriately through food therapy, you can get wonderful results. I think because many clinicians haven't been trained to do that, they don't trust it, whereas they've trusted bottles of supplements because the tech data sheet, I suppose, suggests that that's what it's going to do. But there's huge gaps there in the science that I think we're utilising today. The system that our body innately has inside itself, I think, well, I can't say I know for sure, but I'm pretty sure it works perfectly so it's meant to do everything that it needs to do when it's given a certain food or it's exposed to certain conditions and i just don't see how it can do that when it's given a single nutrient and you know i've heard you speak about this before in terms of vitamin c megadosing and this is one thing that clinicians love to do they they love to pump people full of you know two three thousand milligrams of vitamin C every day. And there are some uh, articles that say, oh, it's beneficial because it increases this antioxidant in the cell or whatever it might be. 
but I've sort of been questioning that and you might be able to shed some light on this for me. So if we provide something like megadose vitamin C and we see an antioxidant market increasing in the cell, is that necessarily a good thing? We just equate it to being good because it's an antioxidant and that's well, you know, I don't that's even good. think that the cell is particularly looking for antioxidants. There's a clamor, right. isn't it? Um, yeah. Once you, once you look at the cell and you look at the genes which govern cell function and the cell's internal defences, you find there are a whole lot of different enzymes within human cells which are activated on Q. We can talk about the Qs later. So it isn't just antioxidant enzymes. When you switch on the antioxidant enzymes, you're switching on the detoxification enzymes. You're switching on the enzymes which produce the cell's own glutathione. You're switching on metallothionine, which is nature's own heavy metal chelator. You're switching on ferritin, which stops free iron from doing damage within the cell. You're switching on the vitamin D receptors. You're doing all sorts of cell defensive things um, when you can turn on these switches. So to think that vitamin C or vitamin E or beta carotene are going to do that, unfortunately, is very short-sighted because now that we realise the complexity of, of cell defence processes, we realise there's no way a vitamin C molecule is going to beneficially impact that cell in a global sense. You might get a marker that improves one way or the other. But in fact, antioxidant markers are fairly unreliable. The only antioxidant marker, or I don't even like calling it that, a redox marker that I'm even interested in is um, looking at the ultimate end product, and that's the 8-hydroxy um, the DNA marker, so you can have a look and see that the DNA has ultimately been damaged. These internal markers that are looking at total antioxidant capacity and so on, they're completely useless. And I realised how useless they were when I was doing um, research work on type 2 diabetes. And when you look at the glutathione levels, for example, um, in a type 2 diabetic, you look at a newly diagnosed diabetic and you find their glutathione levels are very high. So if you're looking at GSH to GSSG, so the reduced to oxidized glutathione, you find they're very high and you might think, hmm, there's nothing really wrong with this patient. Their antioxidant status is fantastic. They're good mm. glutathione. As you track them over time, um, a researcher, an Australian researcher um, in New South Wales, did a study and tracked people up to 16 years. And by 16 years, they're starting now to get so much degradative damage within the cells from their diabetes that the cell has now lost the ability to upregulate its defences. And now at about 16 years, you see the glutathione levels drop. So what's going on in here? What's going on is at the beginning of the diagnosis, so the patient's already had metabolic problems for some time, and the cell realises that there's a stressor here. Whatever's going on with this diabetes is causing enormous cellular stress. So the signal says, turn up your defences, and part of those defences is to turn up reduced glutathione. So that high glutathione is not a sign of good health. It's a sign of a type 2 diabetic struggling to fix its own problem. So you can see looking at, at glutathione levels tells us nothing because we don't know where in this process an individual patient is. And just because I say 16 years doesn't mean it's always 16 years, but there is a progression of that disease. So the 8-hydroxydeoxyguanosine, which is the marker that's coming in late in the process, is the only marker that I find reliable. And, you know, we, we just simply don't have these interim markers that tell us this. So that's a tricky one. And, and um, that perfectly answers 
my question. Does it? And, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does because I was thinking this very thing the other day and even if it's not just in terms of things like glutathione, even white blood cell count, you know, we give a herb or we give a nutrient and we go, oh, look, it increased the white blood cell count. That's a good thing. Mm. But we just assume that because maybe it's actually not so much of a good thing. Maybe it's stimulating the immune system now to mount a defense against something that that particular nutrient we've given has initiated in our body that could be causing damage. Exactly. So you know, we were talking about viruses all the time these days, but if a person gets a virus and the immune system is healthy and it mounts the challenge that it should, it does that by churning out truckloads of inflammatory cytokines. So if you were to just do a blood test on that patient and not know that he was getting the flu the day that the test was done, you'd think he had all these dreadful things wrong with him. But in fact, his body is doing exactly what it should do. It, it mounts this challenge that's highly inflammatory. The clue is as soon as that um, infective organism has disappeared, the regulatory mechanism kicks in and shuts that down, and that's the key. And I think while we're on the topic of viruses, that these people who are in the COVID-19 long-haul category who aren't getting better, I believe that that mechanism, that regulatory mechanism is not kicking in where it should. So even if the inflammation has, the acute inflammation has disappeared, things are not restored back to normal. But that's perhaps another story for another day because I've done a fair bit of interesting work last year on the whole COVID-19 story and really just about viral mechanisms and, and immune mechanisms in general. But I guess what we're saying is that you can look at these tests and you can misinterpret because you just haven't got enough information to be able to put it into its proper perspective. So what's the answer to that then? If so many companies and clinicians are promoting single uh, nutrients, then we need to start looking at whole food supplements. I think before that, Daniel, we've got to go back and clearly explain how human cells work because once you see how they, they work, you can see that there's no single supplement that can do what these signalling molecules can do. These individual isolated nutrients, megadosed or otherwise, are not really serious signalling molecules. And I say serious because they do have some signalling effects, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the, the um, intrinsic mechanisms within human cells that Mother Nature has embedded in each one of our cells that do their own thing if we feed them properly. And you can't feed them properly with isolated nutrients because you have no way of knowing on a moment-to-moment -moment basis what that cell needs. There's, there's just really no way to know that. So, Christine, you were talking about earlier on in our discussion around high-dose vitamin therapy. So what's actually happening to the cells when we are giving that high-dose therapy? Let me just go back a little step there and ask the question, what makes a cell want to activate its own defences? And the answer to that is it has to detect a stressor of some kind. So that stressor could be uh, cigarette smoke wafting in to your lungs, it could be radiation, it could be a toxic chemical that you've consumed in your food or something of those of that type. So when the cell experiences a stressor and it has little monitoring devices, if you like, that can pick up a stressor, when that happens, that registers to the cell, okay, you're going to get into trouble here, we're going to end up with some free radical damage, we better switch on our own defences. So you're also going to end up with some toxins in the cell, you better switch on your defences against toxins. And we'll just use those two examples. So when that happens, the cell activates a switch. So the key switch in this process is one called NRF2. That's a major transcription factor. 
and it is anchored in the cell to a molecule called KEEP1, and KEEP1's like the little antenna that's floating around and goes, aha, here's a stressor. When that happens, KEEP1 says to the NRF2, off you go. It releases the molecular attachment, sends it off to the DNA. Inside the DNA, NRF2 finds the appropriate gene and it slides along and lines itself up on that part of the, the DNA. So let's say it's the superoxide dismutase enzyme, which is the primary antioxidant enzyme, or it could be a detoxification enzyme like glutathione mistransferase. So NRF2 lines itself up, multiple copies of NRF2 line themselves up along these genes. That activates gene expression and now the cell starts churning out all of these antioxidant enzymes, the detoxification enzymes, and so on. So it looks after its own defence in that way. Now, the stressor signal that the cell is using to pick up this signal is typically pro-oxidant in nature. It's usually uh, some sort of pro-oxidant, not savage enough that it's going to destroy the cell, but just enough to provide a signal. So when you've got this signal in the cell and now you dump a whole heap of an antioxidant molecule in there like vitamin C, vitamin A, beta carotene, vitamin E and NAC, those are direct acting antioxidants. Their job is to quench any free radical they find. So when they're in the cell in large doses, they have now neutralised that pro-oxidant stressor signal and now the cell just misses that signal altogether. It does not activate its own defences. It doesn't switch on any of those protective genes. That's the problem. The signals are getting masked, and that's my real concern about practitioners using particularly high-dose antioxidant vitamins because they're quenching those essential cellular signals. Now, we didn't know this back in the 70s and when Pauling was doing his work and these early researchers, but we certainly know it now and we've known it since the early 1990s and particularly uh, since nutrigenomics became um, better known and the term was coined in 2004. Since then, we've known this is how cells react to their environment. And when we're dumping these large doses of antioxidant vitamins, we're masking those essential signals. Now, that doesn't happen with food. You can eat oranges and pawpaws and capsicums and whatever provides vitamin C, let's say. You can't get those quantities of vitamin C instantly into a cell the way you can with a supplement. And certainly, you know, people taking supplements like 400 units of vitamin E, the recommended daily intake of vitamin E is about 10 units. And, you know, it's not uncommon to use 400 units. Why do we do that? Why do we think we have to override the cell's own intrinsic functions? So that's my concern and, and that's where I come back to food because I can eat any amount of food that I like and I can never eat enough food that's going to give me the mega doses that tend to be consumed quite frequently. The other problem with using synthetic supplements is now there are so many condition-specific supplements on the market that I might take a multivitamin that has a bit of everything in it. I might take some other condition-specific supplement. It might have all sorts of bits and pieces in it. I can get zinc out of every one of three or four different supplements I take. I can get ascorbate out of every one of those supplements I take. What clinician ever adds up those totals to see how much is actually being consumed? And I would suggest no one does, and I'd suggest no one does because it's too hard to do on the fly. If you're with patients, you can't be stopping and calculating how much zinc is in here and how much beta carotene is in there and, and so on and so forth. But I think it's a big failing in the system that we've been using. And, and you know, we can be giving large amounts of zinc and then other divalent ions like manganese, for example, copper. 
other divalent ions which are using the same uh, transporter mechanisms are not being absorbed and we can end up with deficiencies or functional deficiencies, if you like, in a whole host of other nutrients and we never know that because we've got no way of evaluating it. So I think it's a real dilemma. I would, I would love the opportunity to um, expand our understanding of cell function to the point that more clinicians could see that the old science really doesn't work anymore, and that's what it is. It's old science. It's been replaced, but the profession hasn't replaced it, and perhaps to a large extent that's because just like the pharmaceutical industry, the supplement industry drives a lot of um, what clinicians do. So it's a dilemma. I don't, I don't have an easy answer for it, unfortunately. I don't know, Daniel, whether you do. But just well, I think, I think getting back to basics, getting back to how we used to practice naturopathy back in the 70s and 80s and you know when the the naturopaths didn't have supplements to heal their patients they were still treating their clients quite successfully without all and the these and patients but got better one thing you you said that's the thing i mean my patients got better and it was largely food um that was getting them better and and you know, I did a lot of work with um, blood sugar regulation early in my practice. I didn't set out to do that. Um, I just happened to do rather well with that and um, people would come for that sort of condition. You know how it works. You, you know, you just attract people because they go and speak to their friends. But a lot of that work was based not only on what they were eating but it was on the timing of what they were eating. Um, and I think that's an important concept too that's perhaps being better recognised now. You know, we're um, talking about intermittent fasting and such concepts, um, whereas I think the grazing principle was pretty popular at one stage. So we go through these trends and I think it's a bit of a shame that although we need to keep learning new things and, and more, sometimes we let go of, of the better principles of the past that we really should hang on to. Now, Christine, one thing that you said that really caught my attention just before is that some of these vitamins are synthetic, and that might actually come to a, as a surprise to some practitioners listening to this. So when you're saying synthetic, does that mean that they're being manufactured in a laboratory. They're not actually being derived from a food or a vegetable or a fruit as such? I'm afraid so. So the vast majority of the vitamin C anywhere in the world comes out of China and it's manufactured from corn. It's made in a factory. And, um, well, it was extracted from corn originally to get the carbohydrates, but as you know, corn is not a source of vitamin C. So the molecule is this just then manipulated in a molecular sense to produce a vitamin C molecule. I can't think of a single vitamin supplement that comes from food, not at all, um, nor the mineral supplements for that matter. So does that mean we need to start looking at food supplements? Are they, in your opinion, far superior to anything that we can get that's obviously synthesized in a laboratory or that is maybe taken from like a natural source but still a single nutrient? Uh, yes, but we need to do a fair bit more work on that. And the reason I'm hesitating is um, some years ago I tried to make a selenium supplement using Brazil nuts. And wow, that's such a cool idea. It is such a cool idea, except when I analysed different varieties of Brazil nuts, I discovered that some of them got virtually none. How about that? Really? So, yes. So some of the things which are in our food tables just really don't stack up. Here's another thing. I mean, a lot of my work is looking at cruciferous vegetables and um, when I first started doing this research on sulforaphane, I went to the local supermarket and bought some broccoli and took that off to the lab 
and did an analysis on that and assayed it for its sulforaphane yield and its glucoraphanin content. And the levels in the supermarket vegetables that I bought that day were less than the USDA food tables would indicate. So this is the problem. And, you know, I might have defended or appeared to defend modern agriculture before, but I can't totally defend it because vegetable like broccoli deteriorates very quickly sitting on a shelf in a supermarket or even in your refrigerator. So it's being bred to withstand decay and that means it's not bred to produce bioactive compounds. There's a group in the UK that produced um, a variety of broccoli some years ago which is many-fold higher in its phytochemical content than Um, the standard supermarket broccoli. I mean, they sell it for a premium. And um, so I think if we're going to look at this functional food content uh, concept seriously, we've got to be able to identify which foods. So it's not impossible to do, although I must say the rest of that story about the UK manufacturer, you'll be horrified when I tell you that they sold their technology off to Monsanto. So Why I, doesn't that surprise me? Oh, I don't know. I was horrified. Um, but anyway, um, so yes, food is the source. I mean, the way I get around that is I talk about a diverse diet. I mean, we probably all talk about eating a, <clears throat> a diverse diet. But what I often do talk about is a study that came out of Germany in 2010 where they were using um, markers, blood markers of inflammation and such like and estimating what quantity of vegetable food it would take on a daily basis to favourably change those biomarkers. Pretty interesting stuff. Um, author is Hermsdorf, if anybody's interested, H-E-R-M-S-D-O-R-F-F. And so... That group found that at least 600 grams of non-starchy vegetables a day was necessary to favourably influence those inflammatory cytokines and and other markers within the cell. And I've used that as my yardstick. There's been um, another study on cardiovascular disease subsequent to that, which was actually looking at 800 grams of plant food a day. So that's just ordinary supermarket vegetables. And while those vegetables may be deficient in this or that, they they weren't organic, it is still possible to get a beneficial biochemical effect from that plant food, even if you buy it from the supermarket. Maybe 50 years ago you didn't have to eat 600 grams to get that effect. Nobody knows, nobody studied it. Um, But... I've used that yardstick and I know it works. We use that in in the GEM protocol and that's just a mainstay of the foundation to the treatment program. So let's just think further about food and that if we can get manufacturers to make these more beneficial varieties, the trap there is we're going to have to pay for it. it. You know, it costs money to to add the frills or put the vegetable back the way it should have been. Um, But even so, as I'm illustrating, just a wide variety of different plant foods and a large quantity of plant food, you can do the trick without anything special. Um, And I suspect with my Brazil nut experience, not all Brazil nuts were low in selenium, but it's terribly unpredictable. And um, I mentioned the broccoli before. There's actually a 16-fold difference from the high glucoraphanin broccoli to the low. And when you buy the food in the supermarket, you've got no way of knowing that. It just looks nice and fresh and green and uh, appetising. So that's all we've got to go on. And this brings me to my next point, which is... um the gut okay so we've got a lot of focus in 
natural medicine and, and naturopathy around treating the gut because we assume that all disease starts there. And a lot of the targets that we have are around reducing inflammation in the gut. So if we're using single-dose nutrients or high-dose nutrients like fish oil and things like that, do you think that they're having the desired effect we think they are or do you think there's something else that we can do to either potentiate the effects of those single nutrients or should we look at other ways of treating gut inflammation? Well, I think you mentioned fish oils. I think fish oil is a little further downstream from the origin of the inflammation. So redox imbalance and inflammation act as a couple when you've got uh, high oxidative stress, you'll have a high inflammation. So they work together. So when we talk about reducing inflammation, we're also trying to restore redox balance. So from my perspective, if I can look at the epithelial cells, the single layer lining the gut, and if I can improve the function of all of those cells, doing the things I talked about before, using food as a signaling molecule, I can upregulate those defences. Now, what I didn't mention before, I said there was a switch called NRF2, which we want to switch on. There's another switch called NF-kappa-B, which we want to switch off. So NF-kappa-B promotes inflammation. If I'm choosing the right foods, the right foods will usually simultaneously upregulate NRF2 and downregulate NF-kappa-B. I mean, that's what cruciferous vegetables do. They do all of those things together. So you'll get you're maximising your cell defence mechanisms. So the way I deal with any gut problem is I start by attempting to restore homeostasis in those gut epithelial lining cells and I'm simultaneously taking into account the immune network which resides directly below the epithelium. And I talk about the gut immune interface because when I can restore homeostasis there, a lot of things fix themselves. For example, food intolerances disappear when you get that right. So to me, that's the place to start. Um, and the last thing I would do would be to do anything that's going to perturb the microbiome. So I'm also mindful of the need to feed the microbiome as well. So I'm going to be using prebiotics to do that. I don't bother with probiotics other than fermented foods, but if I'm using prebiotics, I'm also mindful that in some of those patients with the most severe dysbiosis, they bloat very easily from prebiotics. But we find that if we start them just initially on restoring the gut epithelium, um, using the non-starchy plant foods as the core to do that, once we restore homeostasis, then I start selectively introducing prebiotic foods on a trial basis to gradually improve um, the function of the microbiome. The polyphenols, which are the highly coloured um, phytochemicals like, you know, the purples in berries and beetroot and things like that, they are prebiotic as well and that's often not appreciated. Those polyphenols are highly prebiotic but they don't bloat. So our core diet is focusing on addressing the gut immune interface and then I'll use a high sulforaphane supplement and a couple of other immune-enhancing supplements to fast-track that process. But you can do it with food alone. And uh, I think a lot of gut grief would disappear if we looked at it this way. I think one of the most destructive things that can be done to the gut is to give antimicrobials, whether they're antibiotics or essential oils or any other such so-called natural plant material, highly destructive to the gut microbiome. So why would you kill off your best friends? Because they are integral to producing the butyrate, which is the fuel later on for the colon. So I see practitioners giving lots of glutamine, but glutamine doesn't work in the colon. Glutamine is for the small intestine epithelium as a fuel. It's not for the colon. The butyrate is. So 
There's a lot of complex processes that we need to consider. And in all of this, we're not using isolated vitamins and minerals unless we perhaps initially have to be sure that we don't have a deficiency state, an overt deficiency, I'm saying, that we need to counter first. Have you done much research in terms of, because I know with Cell Logic you use a lot of broccoli sprout powder in, in the products. Mm-hmm. So have you done any research into the effects on broccoli sprout, sprout powder and its effects on the microbiome? Um, only indirectly because we use that to target the gut epithelium. And once you get the epithelium behaving as it should, you're automatically improving the conversation between the microbiota and the epithelium. There is one fairly recent study where they investigated the effect of, of sulforaphane broccoli sprout on the microbiota, and it was favourable, but it's just one small study. Um, I, to me, the, the ecology of the gut um, is includes the epithelium, the microbiome, and the underlying immune network. So to me, those three elements are all important if we're going to establish homeostasis there. And I don't see one being more important than the other. Yeah, it's really interesting. The reason why I asked that is because uh, just last night I actually had a practitioner contact me and they were asking about a similar type of thing that we're talking about now in regards to whether or not there are actually foods that can be used to treat things like gastritis. And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, there's heaps. And one of the things that I like to prescribe my clients is a juice of cabbage, celery, and carrot. And cabbage obviously being a cruciferous vegetable, Mm -hmm. I thought that maybe, yeah, there was some um, good research on the possible effect that it has there. Well, there was the vitamin U story that came Yeah, that's right. um, And that was about cabbage. And there were early supplements which contained vitamin U. Can't recall too much about it that's useful, but you're using cabbage. So there you go. Um, We didn't need to isolate it anyway. And the other thing about gastritis is the helicobacter is often a contributor in there as well. And there are several clinical trials that have been done showing sulforaphane can bring helicobacter pylori back into its appropriate balance. And it does that because helicobacter produces a unique enzyme, or it's it's not really unique, we don't produce it. The the enzyme is urease, and urease is breaking down proteins and producing ammonia, and ammonia is alkalizing. So helicobacter likes an alkalizing environment, so it creates its own little alkaline niche, and um, therefore, you know, we've reduced the gastric HCL, so therefore digestion starts to become a problem, particularly proteolytic. Sulforaphane, apart from all the other things it does, is a specific urease inhibitor. And when you inhibit urease, helicobacter can't create this little alkaline niche for itself and it packs up and takes the family and goes home, Um, which is pretty interesting because there are other organisms like Klebsiella um, secretes urease There's a few others I just can't recall off the top of my head. Nobody's done any research on them, but we do know that they secrete the enzyme urease. And so I'm suspecting that we could use sulforaphane on microbes like Klebsiella and in the same way we could possibly put them back into control. I don't like to talk about eradicate because I don't think helicobacter has to be eradicated. The same way I don't think blastocystis needs to be eradicated, although I see that that's the the trendy thing at the moment. And, um, in fact, I don't particularly set out to eradicate these organisms, which are pathobionts, if you like. They can, they can be good guys and they can be bad guys, depending on the environment. And I think what we need to do is ensure that the environment is appropriate so that they sort of get put back in their cage periodically if they're misbehaving. And I would say in many circumstances, those so-called pathogenic 
bacteria that we see in the gut are a direct response from the things we're putting into our mouth. So it's just the fact that that specific bacteria now is optimized for a hamburger and fries diet, yes. right? And then we go in there and as you said, someone might come in, we do one of these tests to look at the microbiome of someone's gut and we see, oh, there's a bit of dysbiosis here. Look at these pathogenic microflora. Let's go in with some antimicrobials and wipe them out and then we'll come in with some probiotics and, and try and clean up the mess. But it's more so about taking out the contributing factors which are in the diet which has caused the problem in the first place and i think a lot of practitioners forget that exactly and then it's about feeding the commensals so stop feeding the pathogens and feed the commensals and stand back and let mother nature sort it out they'll figure it out themselves these little bugs and um, i don't think we know enough about the analysis of the microbiota in the gut to think that we can manipulate them. I mean, I, I see lots of discussions about, you know, I give this to kill this one and I give that to um, feed the other one. This is this micromanaging stuff again that I just think we're right out of our scope of practice trying to do that, certainly at this stage of our understanding. Well, what I've also noticed, Christine, is in some clients, you'll do a microbiome test and they'll actually have these so-called pathogenic bacteria present in their gut or a parasite, but they're completely asymptomatic, which I've always found to be really interesting. So, you know, how, how warranted is it then to treat based off what we're seeing on a test if the patient's not presenting with symptoms? Yes, well, I guess that one's a bit controversial, but I tend to just leave nature alone. I mean, we do know that it's something like 40% of us have got asymptomatic helicobacter present and without any symptoms, um, clearly nature has got control of it. And, And the same can be said of blastocystis. I mean, it's not necessarily doing any harm. And I see what happens is a patient with severe gut symptoms will get a test, blastocystis will come up on the test and everybody jumps to the conclusion, aha, that's what's causing your problem. We don't mm. know that. We don't know that at all. And so then I, I see these cases where they use a lot of antimicrobials and might do a couple of courses and still the symptoms remain and in some cases they're worse because now we've knocked off some of the commensals that we shouldn't have done in the process. So that yes. makes no sense to me, uh, and which is really why I just want to go back to the, the fundamentals. When I started in practice, as I said at the outset, and we didn't have much more than food to work with, that's what we did, and we didn't have the ability to manipulate anything very much other than through diet and lifestyle. And patients actually got better and we didn't have the availability of the test. So if a patient had had blastocystis, I would have never known. Yeah, right. So whatever whatever they got better from, I'll never know that either. But typically the patient doesn't care. This is a conversation I was having with a practitioner the other day, Christine, Mm -hmm. was that we are so caught up on having a working diagnosis. We must know what is it. I need to do all these functional tests to find out what the thing is and then I can treat it. But the reality of the situation is naturopaths have been working without these specific uh, tests and investigations for hundreds of years and they've managed just fine. So uh, I, I don't – I have to – Yeah, I'm not sure that we're heading in the right direction here, trying to become more micro and more micro with everything that we're trying to investigate and then target with a certain nutrient or probiotic or antimicrobial. I think we really need to just about face and go back the other way and and get in touch, as you said, with our fundamental principles, the roots, all the things that make naturopathy so special and effective. Absolutely. And it seems like an odd thing for me as a scientist to say that I don't do a lot of testing. It might seem really odd. A scientist should test. But but what I've concluded is when I am presented with a case, <clears throat> there's some pretty obvious things that I have to do first. 
whether or not whether I've got test results or not, there's usually some pretty obvious things for a start. I ask them what they eat. So for a start, I've got heaps of work to do there in most cases. <clears throat> Pardon me. And um, I clear out a lot of that fundamental problem that's there and then we can sit back and go, okay, you came to me and you had six things you were complaining about. Four of them have gone. You're happy. But these two are still niggling. Now's the time for me to dig in and go, right, what didn't change? Why didn't it change? What should I test? Instead of burning a whole heap of the patient's money at the outset on tests which may or may not change my practice at the time, if I if my intervention is not going to change depending on what comes back from that test, I shouldn't have done the test. And I think we need to consider the patient's pocket as well because it saddens me so much when I hear cases where the patient's sort of spent all this money they've done a lot of tests and now they go, but I haven't got any money left for the treatment. I've spent a couple of thousand dollars on all of these tests and I've got no money left. I mean, it's an awful situation. It doesn't happen under the mainstream system because Medicare is covering it. And I think there's a heck of a lot we can do before we need to start ordering pathology reports of any type. I completely agree. And this is one thing that I continually say to practitioners and students is that unless a test is going to change the way in which you treat that person, don't order the test, okay? Because the treatment is going to work just as effectively whether you do that test or not. And nine times out of 10, when we start to clean up the diet, reduce the stress, get them sleeping better, exercise, get out in the sun, do all those fundamental things. And as you said, just sit back, let the body adjust for a couple of months and let's just see what happens. Um, Nine times out of 10, they're going to be getting better. And then if there's things left over that are really stubborn, then maybe we can use some of these tests to investigate further rather than using them at the start when there's so many other contributing factors causing problems. Yes, completely agree. And imagine how it must feel if you send a patient out for a particular test and it comes back and there's nothing wrong and, you know, they spent $300 on this test. I mean, that must be an awful feeling. Yeah, it's... um certainly something that I think I'm not saying that testing isn't important I want to want to make that um no I very agree. clear it's the timing it's when you do it I think. exactly yeah yeah uh, and then you can be a lot more targeted I mean if they come to you as I said before with six things wrong with them which one of those should I focus on well the patient might say look this is the thing that's driving me crazy can you fix that well maybe I can maybe I can't I don't know but I think this is why the conversation with the patient is so important because some patients will go, oh, my friend went to a naturopath and he did all these tests and he found out what was wrong with him and I want you to test me too. And I know that patients can be very demanding in that way, but I still think you sit down and explain to them, look, this is going to cost a lot of money. And I don't, you know, some people don't care how much it costs, of course. But I think for most people, they will appreciate if you say, I want to save your money for testing to the right time where it's going to really matter. Let's not waste a bucket load of money right now. And I've actually never had anybody argue with that when it's explained to them in that way. They do see the logic in that. I absolutely love your way of thinking, uh, Christine, and it's been such a pleasure having this conversation with you. Just wondering if there's anything that you'd like to um, finish off with, any final thoughts? Oh, look, I think it's about exploring the science of, of human cellular function. Um, to me, that's where the answers are, and I never cease to be amazed at the the new processes which are being discovered. And, you know, I sometimes say that I find these wonderful little treasures sitting in dusty on dusty library shelves where some researcher has done something to do with nutrition and cell function and it's never been picked up 
and uh, I delight in finding those little treasures and bringing them to the fore and talking to the clinicians who are uh, in my scope of influence. So, yeah, it's an exciting field to be in. It, it's, it, you know, I, I'm a little bit like a kid in a lolly shop when it comes to reading some of this material because there's always something new and exciting there and um, makes me delighted to be working in the field that I work in. I couldn't think of doing anything else. So thank What's... you very much for the opportunity of talking to you today. Oh, it's not a problem at all. You're so welcome. And, you know, I just wanted to also let people know that um, I've had some really wonderful experiences in my dealings with Cell Logic. And one thing that I must say I've always really found of great benefit is the amazing education that you provide to clinicians, practitioners, students, and the like. So if people want to find out more and they want to get some um, educational material from you or they want to find out about things like the GEM protocol, for example, where's the best place for them to get that information from? Well, they can just contact us at CellLogic, which is C-E-L-L-Logic.com.au. We have a number of clinician educators on our staff and they're all clinicians in their own right. Um, and if practitioners are interested to explore we can put them in touch with one of our clinician educators or they can just browse around the website and um, there's lots of material on there. You just register as a clinician and you can get into the back end of the website where all the good stuff is. There's videos and training and, and different things like that. And, yes, we love providing quality education material. Christine, I really appreciate you coming on. It's been such a pleasure. And I'd love to have you back on the show sometime. So we'll definitely stay in contact. You always challenge uh, my thoughts and I really appreciate that because you give me so much to think about and, you know, I'll go away from this today having to go and go through some more research and, and uh, challenge my currently held beliefs and my knowledge. So thank you so much for doing that. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to chat to you again. It's been an absolute pleasure, Daniel. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals. Until next time.